I'm Luke Story. For the past 22 years, I've been relentlessly committed to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of spirituality, health, psychology, and personal development. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. This is a bonus rebroadcast episode featuring my recent appearance on the Shamanjelic podcast with Anahata Ananda entitled From Addiction to Liberation. We'll be back this Tuesday with our regularly scheduled program with episode 340, Unlocking the Mysteries of Quantum Technologies and EMF Protection with Philip Samore von Holtzendorf feeling of Lila Quantum Tech. Here are some of the topics we talk about in this conversation with Anahata. The connection between childhood trauma and addiction. How the things we use to seek comfort change and evolve as we age. The different types of addiction from alcohol, pornography, sugar, drama, money, social media, and validation from others. The cycle of sedation and how to break it. What to do when your numbing and coping mechanisms no longer give you the desired result. The importance of forgiving people who have hurt you in the past. Primary pain versus secondary pain. Becoming aware of and addressing the core issues. Getting in touch with your own moral compass and learning to use that moral compass as the guide for how you live your life. Relapse prevention, tools, and tips, and the importance of the 12 step program as a blueprint for life and recovery from addiction. So enjoy this bonus rebroadcast episode and be sure to share it with someone who struggles with addiction. It's a hard trap to escape and it kills far more people each day than all strains of coronaviruses combined. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of the Shamanjelic Healing Podcast, joined here with my dear soul brother, Luke Story, and we're going to dive into all things related to addiction and breaking addictions. And let's just face it, we're all navigating with some form of addiction, and I really respect, Luke, that you have walked this journey into the fire, almost devoured by it, and out the other side and helping other people through it. So, Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great yeah. to be here. Yeah. Um, and welcome to Sedona. It's good to be back. Yeah. It's good to be back. It's been a while. And I find it um, always very grounding and nourishing to yeah. be here. And it's great to be able to meet some people this time. You know, I've come in the past just on a vacation and just yeah. kind of rolled through and, you know, did the things and got out. Uh, but this was a much longer trip and had the, you know, the opportunity to explore some community here. So it's been a much different experience and really nice. Yeah. We're getting on the land and feeling the medicine and super, super sweet. Yeah. So I want to, I just want to acknowledge that everybody's navigating through some form of addiction. I mean, this conversation is for everybody and I want to, want to dive into what is underneath the reach for validation, the reach for sex, the reach for uh, the phone, alcohol, drugs, whatever it is, whatever you're reaching for to sedate, ignore, distract, uh, numb. What in your experience, um, you know, what is underneath that? What is underneath the reach for a substance or an experience? It's such a, it's such a deep topic and there's so many facets to it, but I think a starting place based on that question would be attraction and aversion. Mm. It's we're wired to avoid pain. Mm. 
thank God, right? I mean, if you walked up the stairs and hit your knee and it didn't hurt, you'd probably keep hitting it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But that goes for emotional pain. So we're wired to escape feeling uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And we're also wired to uh, pursue pleasure. And so human beings are really set up to habituate themselves toward both of those extremes. And for some reason, and I'm sure we'll get into this and I've yet to figure this out. It's, <laughs> it's one of life's great mysteries to me. Uh, for some of us, people like me and many, <laughs> most of my friends, if not all of them, well, not all, <laughs> but the vast majority of friends that I've had for the past 24 years since I've been free of some of the most um, destructive addictions is that, uh, you know, they shapeshift the things that we use to seek comfort from change and evolve and, and those things that we use to, um, to numb ourselves change and evolve too. And some of us are wired, uh, to have the experience where drugs and alcohol, like strong mind altering substances make us feel whole and complete. Mm -hmm. And that was the case for me for when I was a kid. And, you know, we'll get in, of course, why it was necessary to uh, numb the pain and where the pain came from. But I know people that had similar experiences as kids, trauma, divorce, etc. And uh, if they ever tried drugs and alcohol, it didn't give them this feeling of being at home. It just it gave them a headache or they got dizzy or they got paranoid and they just kind of left it alone. And maybe they developed some other dysfunctional coping mechanism, or maybe they just integrated and learned how to deal with being a human and all that comes with it. But someone like me, the first time I did drugs and alcohol, it was just, it was like the experience of oneness and the end of suffering. And uh, it was temporary, you know, of course, in each moment, and then I had to keep pursuing it. But it's interesting that some of us are wired to where if we're in emotional pain, we get drunk and all the pain goes away and we feel amazing. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> and, and for some people it doesn't yeah, work like exactly. that, you know, exactly. like I have two brothers, right? They grew up in a couple years apart. Very, they were, they're half brothers. So they're quite a bit younger than I, uh, but they had a pretty similar experience, mm-hmm. right? Same parents, same divorce, same schools, the whole thing. Uh, and had their share of pain and discomfort, I'm sure as kids for one of them. He was like me and he's now sober, thankfully. Uh, The minute he found drugs, it was just like the be all end all to all problems. The other brother never has ever found any relief from drugs and alcohol or really developed any profound addictive tendencies to anything. So what I'm hearing is this is um, some of us are wired differently when it comes to substances and how we interact with substances. It certainly seems so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, my fiance, Allison, I mean, I don't do recreational drugs, but I have done some plant medicines in the past couple of years and done very intentionally. And perhaps we'll get into that at some point, but uh, definitely not seeking a means to escape, but to really do some deep healing and some deep shadow work. <laughs> uh, for her, it, the experiences that she's had, even with that are so much different because she doesn't enjoy being full on. She's just not extreme, you know, and for some reason, I'm just someone who's always been extreme, whether it's on, you know, the negative side and doing things that are self-destructive or 
in all of the healing work and uh, spirituality and doing things that are very constructive and building. You know, some of us, I think, are just wired with that kind of all or nothing yeah. level of temperance and temperate. What's that word? Temp- temperance. Temperament. <laughs> Temperament. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I seem to be born that way. And, and, and many people are. And I've always been fascinated by that in all my years of recovery. It's just so strange that some people seem to have a DNA code that just lends itself to yeah, becoming action. addicted and some not so much. And so there's a propensity, perhaps, a yeah. propensity um, for certain addictions. And, and it seems like that there's, you know, depending on our personality, depending on our background, our pain, we may have a propensity for different types of addictions. And it might be for a parent's approval. And that's just more socially acceptable than you know, a drug, uh, you know, a drug addiction where turns into a, a junkie where you can be an attention junkie and you can be a success junkie and you can be a fitness junkie and it can have, it can be rewarded in a way that isn't as social, is, is more socially acceptable than the other addictions, sugar addiction, coffee addiction. It's like, oh, isn't this funny? Isn't this like, and, and so we might not notice that there's that propensity for other addictions as well. They're just more socially acceptable. They're just more glamorous. They're more common. And they're not so much like those ones that we think of like, oh, that dark CD kind of drug addiction thing that has a different flavor and a different feeling to it of like, oh, well, that's me. So then I must not be addicted. Um, so what, uh, what was underneath your particular journey was, you know, at a young age, you went full on Yeah. at a young age, you, you were like full on and like, (laughs) what happened? Like, I'm always curious with, with, with almost 20 years of working with, with people around addictions, whether it's cigarettes or alcohol or whatever sex, you name it. Uh, what was going on at the time before the reach for the thing? So, you know, paint for us a picture of what was happening for you in your childhood before any addiction patterns started for you. You know, it's funny. We were going through uh, a, a bin that I pulled out of the closet of old photos from just my whole life. I just have this huge, one of those target plastic bins <laughs> and you know, I'm born in 1970, pre-digital camera. So I just inherited all these photos and used to take a lot of photos and things. And my parents were, I guess, somewhat um, avid photographers because there's a lot of pictures of me when I was a little kid, which is nice. You know, you feel loved. But I was looking at some and there was uh, there were photos around the age of four. And I picked up this one particular photo and uh, and Allison saw the same photo and we both kind of looked at each other and there was this profound innocence in that photo. And I thought about, um, you know, why that was. And I was looking at the timeline and that photo was taken before I was sexually abused. And there was just a different um, energetic quality to my personality and just my beingness at that point. And so... Um, you know, it's no surprise to me that there was a huge punctuation mark at the time. I must have been five or six or something like that, that I had this experience or a couple experiences. And um, it's, I mean, even before I got sober, I knew that there was a turning point when I had that experience and that that trauma had really 
warped my personality. And so there's been a really profound journey around exploring that and really finding all of the different levels to that experience. You know, there's the first stages of going, oh, shit, something happened to me when I was a kid and it really hurt me, right? And so there's there's talk therapy and there's crying and there's, you know, just um, the unraveling of the shame that was associated with the secrecy of those experiences, which started for me at around 14, uh, where I started, you know, doing group therapy and talking about it and told my parents this had happened and things like that. Uh, and then there's the spiritual work that comes into finding forgiveness for the perpetrator and forgiveness for the experience itself. And then further into that, uh, finding as weird as it might sound to some people who have shared that experience to finding the gift in that. And then even beyond that, the karmic reality of why some of us have those experiences. So going back to your question, um, I know, or I've known as an adult that it was the shame and the pain of that experience that caused me to feel so uncomfortable that I just needed something in order to cope and be in the world, right? With some normalcy to be able to go to school and be a kid. Uh, What I didn't know and what's been really revelatory for the past few years is I've you know, continued to go deeper and just find, you know, why do I not want to put my phone down now? <laughs> is, it, <laughs> is it related to that? You know, my, why do I refresh Instagram every 30 seconds? You know, not that um, any of us know anything about that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, there's a long, you know, chain, there's a hierarchy of addictions, you know, and I think now most of mine are, you know, I wouldn't say harmless, but definitely don't not- interrupt my life in the way that drugs and alcohol did. But in looking at that early trauma, it's interesting because it's not it's not solely what happens to you that there was this experience of having my personal space and my body and my boundaries invaded. Uh, it was that there was nowhere to take that experience. My parents didn't know. Even if they had, I don't know what their capacity would or wouldn't have been to be able to hold space for that and to work through that. But I think the psychological damage was probably equal to the actual um, abuse was just having to hold that. Right. For a six-year-old, for a seven-year-old, for this age. yeah, And to have no means by which to contextualize what had happened. And so therein started um, patterns of dishonesty, lying, secrecy, a disconnection uh, from my caregivers because... I couldn't let them know what had happened. Um, you know, just an underlying sense of of feeling different, that there was something wrong with me, just a felt sense of shame. And so with that, <laughs> you know, another kid that could have had the same experience maybe wouldn't have responded to drugs and alcohol. But for me, probably, I don't know, seven, eight years old, I started to you know, drink and smoke weed and do coke and take pills and just whatever drugs I could find in my environment, uh, which were pretty abundant just due to the, you know, set and setting that I happened to be in. In the 70s in Northern California, you know, the hippies had kind of migrated out of the hate and settled there and grew weed and 
cooked meth. And there was this convergence of kind of hell's angels and hippies. And there was just a real drug culture there. Um, And so it was around and I found it and it was just immediate relief. I want to, I want to get with, first of all, I just, I want to be with this connection, this reconnection to innocence. Mm -hmm. And I want to just, you know, for anyone that has had a trauma of any kind of sexual nature, physical abuse or abandonment. Um, uh, it, trauma comes in many forms. Yeah. And, um, it, and so I want to acknowledge for anyone listening, just the, 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 the journey of connecting to the inner child before the event, before. The thing. And that's a big yeah. part of the healing. It Huge. seems and in, in, in when I've worked with my clients is to, you know, and myself is to remember who I was, the little girl who had like light in her eyes and lots of energy and lots of joy and trusted and loved everybody and to reconnect with that, to come home to that. Um, and so I want to acknowledge the emotional tenderness of, of reconnecting to that. Yeah. That, so. That. That aspect of ourselves. You said something earlier, and I really want to dive into this because you said the drugs and the alcohol made me feel one. And I want to, I want to acknowledge that that four-year-old felt that connected to the one, connect, whole, connected, safe, loved, and um, that's the wholeness. It sounds like after the trauma. Or after the, you know, that experience, the drugs and alcohol allowed that imprint to be erased momentarily. So it gave you that opportunity to reset to that zero point again. But that isn't feeling whole and and because there's there's a substance altering you in a distorted way, and it's not permanent. It's not sustainable. It's 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 a it's a crutch to come back to the four-year-old sense of wholeness yeah. of our divine, yeah. our, our divinity, our purity and our essence. Um, so I want to clarify that because now we can find ways in which we can find that the authentic oneness without having to sedate or um, numb a part of our trauma, which is disassociation, and it's not uncommon when, when a trauma has happened to disassociate from the body. Like you said, I disconnected from family. I disconnected from, you know, probably your child, you know, being a child. And like, hey, not that many eight-year-olds like start hitting the sauce yeah. you know, like, yeah. and pills and pot at that age. And so that's that's like adulting at eight years old. Yeah. You know, like that's that's going to, you know, adult level sedation at a, at a very young age. Um, and I, I started, I started drinking. Um, I started smoking and drinking like 12, 14, like in there. And, um, yeah, that like, it was like, well, I better just do what everybody else does. And there was, I had my own reasons for sedating, but, um, my question is, is like, so, so how do you feel about that? Well, about that, like refining or redefining yeah. that the drugs or alcohol was taking you to wholeness, but it was just like 
taking a break from that. When that experience of trauma happened, and you're so right that it comes in many forms. Sometimes I like to say trauma is what happens to you. And sometimes it's what doesn't happen for you. Right. So abandonment or neglect, these are also traumas, you know? And so there was a chain reaction of that trauma, which was something happened to me, but then there were things that for whatever reason didn't happen for me, uh, which is no one's fault. It's just the way that it played out. Um, But in terms of coping with trauma and gravitating toward drugs and alcohol, it's that, you know, I and so many others like me that experience early trauma, you lose your innocence. But really, I had a realization one day that it's in no sense, but it's also inner sense. So at four years old, five years old, I'm starting to develop the little beginnings of the healthy ego and becoming individual and learning that I have a personality and preferences and becoming the little Luke, right? And so there's an inner sense that develops through your childhood years that you start to learn who you are. Mm -hmm. And when that happened, there was a part of that personality that was robbed and had to remain hidden. And then that experience needed to be obscured and became secret. And so who I was, was really lost. And so that connection to source, to God, to oneself, that is, I mean, it's so abundantly clear when you are around babies, you know, they're just, they're just with God. They don't, they don't have an ego yet. They haven't, they don't have cognition to the point where they can start making sense of things or being confused by things. They're just in this, you know, usually blissed out state of oneness. And so when I used drugs and alcohol, I was trying to get back to that center point. And many people have the misconception that drugs get you high, that they take you to a higher level of consciousness, when in fact, really what they do is they just remove the blocks that are preventing you from experiencing the higher states of consciousness. And so I had within me, just like I have within me now, an access point to God and oneness. And I perceived because of that trauma that I had become disconnected from that. And I felt so separate from family, friends, school, society. I felt so alone. And when I did drugs and alcohol, those feelings of shame and the feelings of anger, hurt, confusion, fear, anxiety, all of those lower emotions were obscured by drugs and alcohol, which gave me the feeling of being high. But our natural state is oneness. And so all I was really doing was creating a facsimile, Mm -hmm. a false sense of oneness. And thank God there were molecules around that helped me to do that because I I don't know that I would have survived without it. I mean, just to go to elementary school, knowing that, or at least sensing that I'm different than these other kids and there's things happening at home that I can't share and no one would understand. And just that sense of feeling alone. When I would smoke weed, it was like, I didn't care about any of that. I felt completely at ease. Right. Temporarily. I, 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 want, said, I want to know. acknowledge that, that, you know, first of all, when you said, Hey, when I was feeling this, there was alone, disconnected, fear, pain, and, and that, that, seems like that's the cause. Wherever that source for any of us is coming from, as adults, where we feel alone, disconnected, um, afraid, um, and or not safe, or not seen, that that's 
whether we're six, 16, 26, 30, wherever we are in life, that that's, that's kind of what's under that help me to sedate, help me to connect, help me to, to release this fear, help me to soften the edges of the pain or numb the pain, that that's kind of what's underneath it. Um, and I think for, for many of us that until, it buys us some time. What I feel that you know, my addictions have provided for me is it bought me some time from when I had an experience and I reached for something to sedate or numb or whatever um, because I didn't have the tools, I didn't have the support, I didn't have the consciousness, I didn't have the resources, the wherewithal, the will or the maturity, you know, probably all of that to, to do the inner healing to feel the feels, to hold space for my emotions in a way in which would provide me the opportunity to reconnect, feel more, more whole without that substance. So I know that for me personally and for, you know, for clients that I've worked with at different times, like recognizing that, okay, this bought you some time. We're not here to judge it that you should have sobered up earlier or you, should, you shouldn't have you know, started that addiction or you shouldn't have because then we're just adding shame on top of shame. But it's this understanding that at some point there's diminishing returns on the choice to sedate, ignore, um, numb, and that at some point the the diminishing returns, the cost is going to become so high that now this crutch that has bought me some time, I'm going to need to release it. And I'm going to need to learn how to kick off this, these training wheels. I'm going to reach for those tools that support that truth, that oneness that is going to bring me back to authentic, sustainable wholeness. So now let's let's dive into a little bit about the the journey of of making the choice to sober up. Well, it's when <laughs> it's what how do you say it? Let me see. For me it's when my addictions started doing more to me than for me. Yeah. You know, There's diminishing returns. Yeah. And so I was willing to pay the, the cost, which was pretty high, in order to be satiated and to feel some semblance of comfort, you know, and that went on for many years. And so uh, despite the loss of friends and self-respect and any moral code and just all of the self-destructive things that I did, um, the price was worth paying because it was better than being me. Then at a certain point, you know, over the course of a few years, really, the the cost to benefit ratio starts to get skewed. And then it's like I'm paying a really high price in terms of the side effects and consequences of that treatment to the point where it just doesn't make sense anymore. And it just, you know, you're just digging yourself in a hole. So it's like if you have a headache, you take one aspirin, it works. Then you build a tolerance pretty soon. You take 10 aspirin and you still have a headache. And then you're getting ulcers and bleeding out your right, hind yeah. end, you know. <laughs> and then you're going, well, God, man, I'm, you know, but filling the toilet with blood every morning and I still have a headache. And you maybe know? that's not it. Right? So at a certain point, and then you, you know, try every other form of aspirin or painkiller or whatever it is. And so for me, it was, um, you know, the case of 
what I call switching seats in the Titanic, you know, so I would, I would start to (laughs) run myself into a wall because I'm doing heroin and that's definitely not a sustainable habit for most of us. And then, you know, it gets really bad with that and you think, all right, I got to quit that. And I go sequester myself away and do like a train spotting opiate kick being locked up somewhere. And, um, I would like pay people to lock me away in a room basically so I could get off it. And then I get off it and I, man, I'm never doing that again. Cause being physically addicted to something is it's a whole other level. You know, it's just not cute. It's it seems glamorous when you see it in the movies sometimes, but it's really not. Um, and then I would think, well, I'm not going to do that, but maybe I could smoke crack. Yeah. You know? Try something else. <laughs> and then I'd you know, run that to its end and then stop that and then start drinking more, you know? And, and so I was always uh, trading one addiction for another. And then eventually at the end, it was just, I became addicted to all of it at once and there was no stopping any of it. It was just full on everything all the time. And I'm 26 years old at that point living in Hollywood uh, in the den of iniquity. And um, I lived in this crazy, sure. like transient apartment building we referred to as Disgraceland. And uh, this is a total freak. I'm going to do a podcast about that five years. <laughs> Be probably entertaining and tragic. But, uh, you know, it was just, I think I had a seed in me that knew what I was doing was going to kill me. Yeah. And there was just this still small voice. That said, you know, you're mostly a piece of shit, but there is just this glimmer of hope that you might be redeemable in some way. And that happened to me. And I didn't realize this for a long time. I actually had that realization on a mushroom journey, which I was doing to escape my problems to just get drunk, take a bunch of mushrooms, go to a concert kind of thing. And one night I did a hero's dose of mushrooms and I had basically a kind of a nervous breakdown with my buddy that was just trying to party with me. And I'm sure I was not much fun, but I realized what a shambles my life was and just how pathetic it had all become. And then uh, I remember saying to him, man, I need to get sober. I need to stop all this. And he's like, have another beer, man. You know, what are you talking about? Why are you tripping? But that really was. And it took me over 20 years of sobriety to trace that back and go, holy shit, I did have a a realization on a mushroom journey um, that led to me a few months later through a, a bunch of other crazy circumstances to finally surrender and to accept help. And you know, I had a close family member that was in um, Alcoholics Anonymous. And you know, I, would, I went to a couple meetings here and there, just kind of thinking, hmm, yeah, I'm not ready for this shit yet, but someday I'll probably end up here. And there's so, a little bit more there, like there's a little, like a slow acceptance, uh, yeah. slow, like inevitably. Yeah. And really, you know, it started because I think when I was uh, 14, I got sent to this reform school in Idaho. because so I was, I got arrested for breaking into houses. And, um, and so I was either going to go to juvenile hall or get sent to the school. And thank God my dad had the resources to send me to this school. And I was there for two years and um, did a lot of personal development work and therapy. And I got out and I've healed a lot of stuff. That's where I started looking at my childhood trauma and abuse and, you know, really dealing with that in a healthy way. And I had a lot of support and I had the first adult in my life that I ever really trusted Trusting. and listened to the, the dean of that school was a really kind and loving man and just was really supportive of me. And I got out and I just didn't understand the nature of addiction that you can't ever touch anything ever again. You know, I didn't understand the complete abstinence principle. And wasn't guided to go to any 12-step groups. I was just, you know, hey, you're fixed. Go back to high school. 
Uh, but I did have a two-year period where I started to build some self-esteem and really learn who I was. And, um, and I think that's really the thing that saved my life. So when I was in my 20s living in Hollywood, uh, while most people that I spent time with had never had that experience of, of really getting some help and having that sunlight of the spirit shine on them for, mm-hmm. for a period, you know? So I, I would always go back to that. Yeah. I'd always go back to that and be like, God, this wasn't how this was supposed to turn out. You know, I checked out of that school when I was 16 and say, you know, 10 years later, here I am in, in that situation I was in. So I think that and the catalyst of that experience with, um, with the mushrooms really, you know, yeah, it's just, there was just something I just couldn't ignore anymore. And what I was doing wasn't working to kill the pain, you know, those lower states that I was trying to suppress and give myself, as I said, that false sense of being high or being in an elevated state of consciousness. Um, it just wasn't working, you know, and now I just have all of these side effects and my life is just falling apart so quickly. And I sense that I'm really close to going to jail, uh, really close to becoming homeless. I was totally unemployable. I couldn't, no one would hire me. I couldn't get a job doing anything. And I couldn't even really, I was selling drugs. That was my, my home business. I was my first venture into entrepreneurship (laughs) and I couldn't even do that anymore. I just couldn't get it together to let people in and, you know, work the answering machine and the pager and do all the things. I was just incapacitated and basically an invalid, you know, and so... Eddie, um, it's, it's so young. We'll be right back at you after this brief but important announcement. I'd like to take a moment to talk about EMF or electromagnetic frequencies. If you've been listening to this show for a while, you know this is a huge issue in our home environment and in the world collectively. In my opinion, this is one of the greatest threats to not only human health, but all life on earth. So I've done everything I can to mitigate the EMF in my house. And I've spent so much time and energy doing so that I decided to create an entire online course for you about it. It's going to be launching in a few weeks And I'm going to give you an opportunity now to get on the wait list and save yourself $100 on the course. I created this course because I'm extremely sensitive to EMF and I found this out the hard way by living unknowingly under two massive cell towers for three years. I suffered from insomnia, migraines, blurred vision, vertigo, nausea. I was sick all the time. It was a train wreck. And as you know, if you're a listener, again, uh, I'm a pretty healthy guy. I'm very committed to my physical health. And uh, these EMFs just wrecked me. So when I moved into this house, I made a commitment to make this house EMF free or as safe as I could. And as I started to do that, I realized, wow, this is a lot of work. So I went ahead and turned it into an online course. It's over four hours of content. There's seven modules and six bonus videos. It is extremely comprehensive and also entertaining. So we go through the house and we look at all the different sources of EMF from everything from a hairdryer to the you know, Wi-Fi enabled heater to the Sonos speakers to the Wi-Fi router, the electric toothbrush, every biohacking gadget in the house. We even tested the flicker level on the lighting. I mean, it's a really comprehensive home assessment with Brian Hoyer, uh, one of the foremost experts in EMF mitigation. And by the end of this course, you're going to know how to discover the EMF sources in your home and how to fix them. It's pretty amazing. I'm really excited about that. So if you want to save $100 off the course and get on the wait list, here's what you do. Go to lukestory.com slash EMF masterclass. 
That's lukestory.com slash EMF masterclass. Or if you have a U.S. phone, you can text the word EMF masterclass to the number 44222. That's all one word, EMF masterclass to the number 44222. Get on that wait list. You're going to save yourself $100 and you will be the first to be notified when the course is released in the coming weeks. And now back to the interview. I want to acknowledge a couple of things here about yeah. what you just said is, is um, what I was doing wasn't working anymore. Mm-hmm. And that kind of speaks to the diminishing returns, whether that's an alcohol addiction, whether that's a phone addiction, whether that's a sex addiction or a pornography addiction or a workaholic addiction. It's like acknowledging that the initial thing underneath, uh, unworthiness, a, a childhood trauma, a heartbreak, an abandonment issue, whatever it is that is underneath the original addiction, then there's that. Those are the what I call the primary cause, primary cause, and the primary pain. Then when we go to the addiction, then that creates what I call like secondary chaos and secondary pain. Because then when you're getting drunk and sleeping around or when you're working all the time, that negatively affects your relationships or when you are sugar addiction, food addiction, then you're going to have health consequence. And so now there's like a whole secondary uh, category of impact uh, diminish, you know, tr- traumatic experiences. Now it's your own hand. Now it's your own hand. Um, and for me, um, the it was alcohol was my go-to. Sugar, first, first and foremost, my first addiction, definitely sugar. Um, second of all, food, like sugar, and then like foods. Third, right in there, close. Like smoking never really landed for me. For some people, their first cigarette, they're like, I'm hooked. For other people, mm-hmm. my first cigarette, I'm like. <laughs> Like I can't, like it, my, it hurts my lungs. I don't like it. You know, uh, it hurts when I go play. I mean, I was literally started smoking at 12 and I was a competitive gymnast. And I remember that when I tried smoking, cause I wanted to fit in, I wanted to numb, I wanted to be cool. And it just did not land that that was an easy one for me. Um, and alcohol, you know, tr- tried alcohol and, um, it didn't take it first, but hey, you know, sometimes you got to stay. With it. Yeah. Sometimes you got to stay with it, right? Uh, so got to commit yourself. Yeah, you got to commit. <laughs> you know, so like one of those after throwing up and 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 like getting drunk and being stupid, like at at thirteen and at fourteen and at fifteen, it just uh, getting drunk and throwing up everywhere. And I didn't realize that like my body can't handle it. Like after taking all these genetic tests years later. I figured out, oh, my body actually cannot handle and metabolize alcohol. And so this is when you say people are wired differently, I think it also has to do with genetics, where some people have an allergic reaction and they just can't. And some people have like it has a a different chemical experience. But I want to acknowledge that other part of now I'm creating bigger messes. Like I've got my core wounding and then probably some other traumas on top of that, you know, this disappointment, that pain, that heartbreak. Now there's this whole secondary consequence of, of the, 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 the shit that I'm creating in my life from um, not being able to keep a job, in your case, not, or 
what I'm doing to my liver or what I'm doing to my body with, with foods or what I'm doing, uh, or, or people that are having sex addictions. And it's like, okay, I keep getting pregnant or I keep having STDs. You know, there's all kinds of secondary consequences now that tend to, now I'm going to go and sedate some more. It's like this cycle, this pattern that says, now I feel even more shame about, I, I cheated on my, I cheated on my partner or I got an STD or I got drunk again. I lost my job. So now there's, I think there's a whole nother level of, of, of that, that that we're dealing with that tends to accelerate. This isn't working any longer. You know, at some point that piles up so much that this isn't working anymore. And this is often what they call, you know, that rock bottom or a wake up call where it's like, now I'm on the street, like you said, or there's a divorce or here's this wake up call with my body saying here's there's a tumor or a disease. And that's there seems to be a, a commonality that invites us to break the pattern. To say this isn't working anymore, this isn't working anymore. And um, at 26, I want to acknowledge for everybody and to ask the question with any substance, with any person, with any part of your lifestyle, staying up till three in the morning watching Netflix, you know, whatever it is, it might be innocence, whether it's just too much coffee, uh, you know, whatever, being a dataholic, you know, whatever it is. What about it isn't working anymore? What about it is causing more pain than benefit? Like, like just to have a come to Jesus reality check about what is more of a medicine right now in my life than a poison and, and that you're not alone in that experience, like that it's, that it's okay to feel that way. You're not weak. You're not wrong. You're not alone. We're all having these wake up calls, some louder than others. And at 26, what was it for you that where you're like, okay, I'm going all in with sobriety? Well, you know, to the point that you're making, addiction is so, it's so destructive in that it starts to erode your moral fiber. Mm-hmm. Right, just your your knowingness of not what you learned from your parents necessarily, but just that inner knowing of like this is right, this is wrong, <laughs> and that line starts to get very blurry, and then eventually just disappears. And this is where people commit crimes and prostitute themselves and steal from their granny and do all of those horrible things that people in acute addiction do. Uh, the real tragedy of it is that. When you do something against your moral code, your God-given moral code, your higher self knows that your egoic personality self is doing that. The animal self is trying to survive and you're making decisions that go against the core of who and what you are, which is an individual representation of God. And you are now diverting from your Godness and your self with a capital S. And that creates a discord and a compounding of the emotional pain. So every time you act out, you, you know, for me, it used to be like watching porn. There was a certain point in my recovery, I realized this is not healthy. I don't feel good when I do this. It, I feel creepy and shameful afterward. And I just don't like it. It's like the high is not worth it anymore. As a kid who, you know, grew up 
I oriented myself to sex through pornography. You know, it was just, it was just how it was, you know. You're not alone. Dirty sure. magazines you found in the garage, you know, your uncles or whatever. And then the Betamax, you know. Uh, but at a certain point, it's like, huh, I do this thing. Then I feel ashamed because I know that there's something. Not, it's not a, even a moral thing with that, but it's just it's um, it's eliciting a sense of who and what I am that is not me and it doesn't feel good. And so you feel ashamed. Like, I can't believe I did that. I'm, I'm sober. I'm, you know, I'm helping other people. I'm supposed to be this upstanding member of recovery. And here I'm going off and hiding in the corner and closing the curtains and doing this very shameful thing. That shame then comes to the surface and you start feeling really uncomfortable. So you go do that thing that makes you feel shameful again. Or a different substance. Yeah. Yeah. And so there really is this, um, you know, the snowball effect to yeah. addiction, because we all have that sense of right and wrong inside. And no matter mm-hmm. how much you try to numb it out, you just know you're going against the core of who and what you are and why you're here. And so every time one acts out in any addiction, that creates more shame. And then you reach for another addiction, another addiction, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. on and on and on. So I think for me, it was just like, I'm throwing every addictive behavior in the kitchen sink at that sense of shame trying to escape and pretty soon there's just no escape everywhere i look there i am yeah and you know just you know also due to the fact that you you just become physically tolerant to drugs and alcohol that you use a lot it's just like we're pretty crafty at justifying it of like oh one more thing or oh it's not that bad you know this is that you know we're really not the best person to be holding space for ourselves You know, the part that is very much attached to the thing. When my sister brought to my attention, hey, I think there might be an issue with you and alcohol. I'm like, I I could not hear it. What came out of my mouth was not, gee, thanks. Yeah. You know, and oh, you're right. You know, because, yeah. you know, and this was somebody who introduced me to, you know, introduced me to alcohol. And so I couldn't hear it from her. And I was so attached that if anyone had tried to take that last drink, that last cosmopolitan, whatever it was, out of my hand, I'd be in jail right now. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. And I realized it was like I couldn't see it. And so we're not we really, I, I think, in that journey of acknowledging addiction, having somebody else that can identify, hey, when you're in the corner with it, when you're hiding it, when there's shame associated with it, where you don't want anybody to know where you can't go without it, there is an issue. And uh, I, re- I remember, uh, you know, my brother dancing with his uh, drug and alcohol addiction for many years and still still working through that. Um, and I always had such judgment standing on the side of his addiction going, I don't understand why he can't break that pattern. I don't understand why he's not strong enough. And and I went to a, I went to a, a a cleansing retreat, you know, years ago, and the 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 person running the retreat was doing iridology for me, and she was looking at at my eyes and my constitution within my physical body, and and she just said, I just have one question for you: What is it with you and sugar? And I just I went blank, and I go, What do you mean? And she goes, Yeah. What is it with you and sugar? And it just, like, I needed somebody to ask me that question. And I just, the first thing that flashed to my mind 
was my stash, my little brown bread, not unlike what you would, you know, not unlike, you know, somebody homeless addicted to their little brown bag of alcohol or whatever's their stash, their needle, their hair, whatever it is under my bed that I shame. I didn't want anybody to find. If anybody found it, I would have gone postal and I was hiding it and I was hoarding it. And when I didn't feel good, like I went to it when I felt alone. I went to it when my dad was being scary. I went to it when I was bored. I went to it when um, I needed energy. I mean, there was a lot of reasons that as I travel the threads back of that addiction to sugar, comfort, uh, all kinds of different things that my bag underneath the bed and I go, oh, I'm the addict. And it was this huge wake up call, Luke, that I was so busy judging everybody else about their addictions just because they were, you know, not as socially acceptable. And it's like, oh, addiction behavior is just drugs and alcohol. And it's like, oh, no, it isn't. It's all over the place. It's all over the place. And when it's accompanied, the word I think you've said more than anything as it relates to your own childhood experience and your own reflection of yourself and your own behavior and also your addictions is, is, is the common word was shame. And that we look at, um, David Hawkins, you know, like vibrational map of consciousness. That's the lowest possible frequency we can feel as humans is shame. And so that's, that's where I'd like to really look at not only is it a reason we go to things, but then when we're going to the things, we feel shame about it. Yeah. And we feel shame about the <laughs> pornography or like, you know, and, and don't, we don't want anybody to know. And I think that's the common thing. Yeah. And therein lies the power of the worldwide 12 step movement, yeah. you know, of having whatever your particular glitch is and going into a room full of people where everyone's talking openly and honestly about those things. There's there's an incredible power in the ability to be honest and face your problems. And that power comes from other people doing it, you know, and modeling what that looks like for you. Uh, I think that shame is so inherent to all human dysfunction, whether it be addictions or not, because it's it's a sense of you're not belonging and there being something fundamentally wrong with you yeah. versus guilt. Ah, I shouldn't have cut that guy off and then flipped him off. You know, it's guilt, but that's about something I did where shame's about what I am, am. what I am. Yeah, and it's deeper. all humans have an inherent need to feel like we belong and we have a place in the world yeah. and that we deserve to be here. And so when you're caught in the illusion that there is something wrong with you other than you just being a human, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's like, if you looked at everyone's humanness, we should all be ashamed if right. that's what you're right, judging right, by, right? right, right? right, right. Because it's so like, we come all on, make stupid if, if you can see the thoughts going on in everyone's heads at all times, you know, whether they're undressing someone or fantasizing about yeah. hitting them in the head with a brick or yeah. whatever, Yeah. you know, we're we're animals with the <laughs> prefrontal cortex, you know, and so we're 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 dangerous animals to others and to ourselves, yeah. and none of us are exempt from that. Uh, and we all have the opportunity, thankfully, to you know, speaking of angelic, to find that angelic part of ourselves and find a balance between the animal nature, the egoic nature, the thinking mind, all of that that we're gifted with in order to keep the human ape meat suit running 
so that our soul can be here and have that experience. When we're in addiction, when we're in shame, we're totally cut off from the experience of being who and what we are as consciousness. We're completely enveloped in that self-centeredness and that myopic view that all we are is thoughts, feeling, body, impulses, addiction, shameful feelings, um, you know, destructive emotions and behavior. Yeah. We're reduced to that seemingly, but we actually aren't. And so in hitting bottom, as you were referring to earlier, for me and most people I know, the bottom isn't what's happening in your life. It's not, oh, I went to jail. Oh, my wife left me. Oh, I you know, was fired from my position. Um, those are side effects or mm-hmm. consequences of the inner bottom that's going on. The bottom is when none of your coping mechanisms give you the desired result. And all there is is the destruction and the wrath of your behavior left. And so at 26 for me, I would have kept going if I still got five minutes of relief. But it's as though I became immune to drugs and alcohol. If you would sit with me, I'm nodding off, burning myself with cigarettes. I mean, I look high as shit. You could put me in front of a thousand people and go, is this guy high? Most definitely. (laughs) He can barely walk or stand and can't keep his eyes open for more than 10 seconds. Uh, And, you know... He has this lit cigarettes that, you know, has a three inch ash on it, just <laughs> nodding out, you know? So I look completely fucked up, but inside my internal experiences, I am stone cold sober in the sense that I'm feeling all of the pain. Yeah. And that sense of shame is acute and there is no escaping it, regardless of how intoxicated I am in my blood work. You're still feeling it. Yeah. So I'm having the physical effects of it, but I'm not getting that spiritual release or that sense of connection that, that it used to do for me. And this is, you know, this is the course of addiction that could happen to someone in their first year. They just start drinking heavily and they're like, whoa, this isn't doing anything for me anymore. And they quit. Some people end up spending years in prison and some people die at 26, you know, with you because they're unable to arrive at that point where where there's that still small voice I was referring to earlier, where you're going, hmm, the math here just doesn't add up. So what what's to be done? And the prospect uh, for me, the what was presented to me was that what was missing in my life was God. Mm-hmm. And that the only solution to my problem was God. And that's a really scary place to arrive at if you're someone who's never had the direct experience of God through spirituality, religion, which which I didn't. In a sober way. Yeah. So luckily for me, uh, I think I was desperate enough and I didn't have a lot of deeply embedded um, preconceived beliefs or disbelief in God. It was kind of like, huh, well, there's got to be something there, even though I didn't know what it was or how to access it. So I think I was very fortunate in that way that I was desperate enough that you could have said, listen, the only way out of this is... You have to become a Hare Krishna and sell pamphlets at the airport. I mean, I would have signed up. I mean, I would have done anything. That's how desperate I was to save my life. That sometimes there is that desperation that that's the catalyst, you know, to the to the wake up call or the I'm 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 going to get the help that I need, or I'm going to join a program, or I'm going to join a treatment center, or I'm going to and and for those things for those for the, for those people that are watching or listening where their addiction isn't necessary drug drugs or alcohol. There's there's other ways to break those patterns. And I want to acknowledge for you, Luke, how far you have come 
from somebody that of what you just described to somebody that has has helped others and been a sponsor for other people through their their sober journey and also you know dove into spirituality consciousness and health and uh, to and and through your podcast leads so many people down that journey tools conversations naming things getting with feelings being vulnerable i mean you've gone such a 180 not just you know we talked about this the other day when when we were um, when you were over the other night for dinner of just there's a difference between sobering up and just not being a druggie or not being addicted to xyz and there's a whole nother there's a whole nother experience of actually living a meaningful impactful spiritually conscious life there's a whole other thing and and that it's not just not drinking because you can still feel oh, numb God. to life but you know you can feel like okay great i'm not an addict or i'm not addicted yeah. to that but i'm also not alive yeah. you know i'm not i'm not connected to the divine or i'm not connected to my purpose or i'm still disconnected i'm just not a druggie or i'm just not an alcoholic or i'm not as much of an asshole great but and there's more and that is what i think you have really done masterfully well is not only navigated your like self out of physical emotional energetic uh, you know demise that almost really consumed you to completely turning that around and and becoming a yogi and understanding and deeply teaching and the and meditation and and consciousness and and the psychology of the self and you've mastered a whole another level of 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 living a lifestyle that is so far from what you describe and so if you can do it my brother <laughs> there's hope for all of us that may have an addiction yeah. that is a little less treacherous than you know heroin you know cuz most people aren't having that level of addiction but if you can make that journey from heroin crack homelessness you know that to spiritually awake and conscious and able to name it and sober and living an impactful life helping others do so there's a hope for all of us yeah you know? well you're so right you know the drugs and alcohol or whatever your poison happens to be uh, and the poison's in the dose too you know i'm not someone that runs around telling people not to do drugs do whatever but know that if it gets to the point where it's controlling you and you're not controlling it you might you know you might have an opportunity there but it really is the symptom and when you when you you know when you're hitting a bottom and everyone in your life from the courts to your parents to your husband wife boss employees whatever are like hey you have a problem and people are confronting you and you're having a hard time seeing that eventually your own pain leads you to be willing to explore sobriety it seems like all of your problems and this is you referring to this before all of your problems are born out of your destructive behavior around your addiction mm -hmm. and there's this mirage in early sobriety that if you just get physically sober you're going to be a great person again. And I, I really, I remember checking myself into rehab and I, I, mean, I wish I had these journals, but I was like, when I get out, I'm going to 
put the, you know, at that point, I thought I was going to go to Narcotics Anonymous because I, I didn't realize what an alcoholic I was because <laughs> I did, you know, most of the destruction came around drugs, it seemed like. Uh, but anyway, I was, I'm like, I'm going to get these NA stickers and put them on my car. I'm going to go to meetings all the time. I'm going to do yoga and I'm going to be happy. I'm going to make money and get a beautiful girlfriend. And I know that I'm a really great person. I just have to extract drugs and alcohol out of my life. And what will be left is an upstanding member of society. And that is so far from the truth. And it was a really actually a harsh reality in the first five years that I was sober because I had so many goddamn problems still. I was so dysfunctional. I was so dishonest. I was so selfish. I was so phony. I was so rageful and angry and just, ah, my character was so flawed. I was so far away from who and what I really am that it was very difficult to actually accept that drugs and alcohol were a symptom of the problem, that the problem was that I was disconnected from God. And so it seems like you just need to kind of chip away at the drugs and alcohol and get rid of that. And then you'll be restored to the amazing person that you think you are when in fact, you get sober and you're just now a selfish, angry asshole that doesn't drink. <laughs> There's a term in recovery that, you know, they say, or it's not a term, but a, uh, a saying of sorts that says, you know, what do you get when you sober up a horse thief? <laughs> you got a sober <laughs> horse thief, right? So getting sober doesn't stop me from stealing horses. That's where aligning myself with spiritual principles and using those principles. And this is why the 12 steps as a teaching are so powerful. I mean, I don't think we even see it now because. It's just so ubiquitous in our culture. Everyone, you know, everyone knows someone has been in one of the twelve step programs in some, you know, yeah. some degree of separation, right? And um, and there's so many different programs for so many different things. But if you really zoom out, you know, prior to 1935, there was really nothing yeah. on the scale of that movement that has transformed not only the lives of the people suffering, but the, the lives of the family and the lineage to follow. And it's just an incredible teaching, just objectively as a spiritual teaching. And really um, what the 12 steps are, and I think why they're so powerful, is they are a, a divinely guided sequence of spiritual truths or laws or principles that one, whether they're addicted to their phone or addicted to shooting heroin in their toe, can apply to their life and be restored not only to physical sobriety, but to mental and emotional sobriety and sanity and use those principles as access points to God. Mm -hmm. And so each of the principles embedded within those 12 steps are, um, they're, they're a living, uh, a living energetic field or property that allows us an access point to God so that you don't have to just go, cool, yeah, I believe in God. Great, all my problems are solved. It doesn't work that way. So there's, you know, self-honesty, self-inquiry, inventory. Them. Let's I just I'd love to list the 12 because yeah, I mean for any, you know, whether it's to the phone, like you said, or to pornography yeah. or a workaholic or whatever it is, like just like let's let, list through those 12. I think because you make a really wonderful point about the sobering up is just one step because what's underneath it, because we were talking about the initial causes, do I have the tools to help heal my inner child? Do I have the emotional you know, support 
Do I have the maturity? Do I have the willingness? Um, do I have some form of spiritual connection, whether you call that God, yoga, meditation? Do I have some kind of spiritual anchor? And do I have, you know, the people around me that are supporting my sobriety um, and want me to be that way? And, and so there's, we're going to talk about lifestyle in a second. But uh, can you just roll through those? Because that way, people that are not familiar with the 12 steps can just kind of jot those down or just be aware of, of this. It's a roadmap. It's a roadmap. It's a personal development roadmap. So what's, what's the first one? Well, the premise to set it off is that we use addictions and drugs and alcohol to change our perception of reality, right? And it's a false sense of what reality is. So I walk in a room, I'm feeling self-conscious. I have a couple of drinks. Now everyone seems much more friendly and I'm way cooler and taller, right? Spiritual principles have the ability to not only change one's perception of reality, but to change reality itself through quantum physics, mm -hmm. right? So the way that I think something is, and the way that I perceive it to be a reflection of what it ends up actually being. So, you know, in a case of being really emotionally sober, I walk out of here today, I go to the gas station and everyone is incredibly friendly in there and the, the clerk is so helpful, right? Because I'm aligned with principles. I have a sense of humility. I have a sense of acceptance. I have um, a sense of self-awareness, et cetera, et cetera, on and on, right? Just embodying spiritual truths or principles. And I go out into the world with that lens and that perception, then the world that I'm creating and co-creating and manifesting is based on my alignment to truth, to those spiritual laws. When I go out into my world and I'm not aligned with truth, then what I'm presented with is um, a false sense of reality. And that reality is so uncomfortable that I've got to reach for something to change it. So we're always looking for a way to, to change our perception of reality, but there are ways that are sustainable and there are ways that are destructive and temporary. And so within the 12 steps, there are thousands of principles in the literature of, of those programs. Uh, you know, each word or each sentence or paragraph can just be imbued with so much spiritual power. And so uh, it's really fascinating when you, when you break it down um, because it very much aligns with David Hawkins' map of consciousness mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because each of the 12 steps um, helps you to arrive at a certain level of consciousness or a certain level of awareness or understanding. So when one is seeking to get sober, they are in that state of shame, uh, apathy. Mm -hmm. And so you have no power. Really what the problem is, is that an addict or alcoholic lacks the power to change. And the reason that we don't have that power is not because it's not here and available. It's because we're trapped in a lower energy field where we don't have access to that power. But if you can align yourself with the power of self-honesty, you know, admitted that I'm an alcoholic, I can't solve my own problems, you know, essentially, right? So there's honesty. Honesty has much more power than shame mm -hmm. or apathy. Accountability. Like, right? Shame is like, you feel like shit about yourself. Apathy is you don't even care. If you can get above apathy and realize like, you know, like what happened for me, there's someone in here, a part of me that's redeemable and worth saving. What is it that um, is, is my problem? You know, so admitting that I'm powerless over something uh, in step one inherently means that 
there is some power that's available somewhere that I just don't seem to have access to. So I'm powerless, but it doesn't mean that God is powerless. And, and it's a shift from, uh, you know, that unworthy, like, it's a shift from futility to acknowledgement, yeah. like lying and deception and, um, and, and really denial to a level of acceptance and honesty of just self-honesty. And you were talking earlier about this whole journey of, of, uh, you know, and I know that there's accountability where you make amends, you know, as part of the process. And you also got to this point, like later, 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 then there's forgiveness, which is a much higher frequency of, of going back to that part of you, the going back to uh, a perpetrator or a situation where there were in that higher frequency of heart forgiveness for the situation and, and the experience or a forgiveness of self. But like those are much higher frequencies that are yeah. part of the part of the process. Yeah, all of the spiritual principles, whether they come from the 12 steps or any, right. you know, it's not right. like it's not like God's truth showed up in 1935 and that's the only place there they are. Right. They just happen to show up and come through one particular guy in a specific order. And yeah. the order is what's important, right? Because you could tell an alcoholic, you know what? You're inherently selfish and self-centered. The key to your liberation is helping other people. That's too fat. You, yeah. you skipped a bunch of steps. <laughs> That's why that's in the 12. But the first one is admitted we're powerless over alcohol okay. and that our lives have become unmanageable. Mm. And this is so beautiful and so profound because I'm admitting with humility that I can no longer manage my own life. And then you look further what is my life? Is it the parking tickets, the jail, the probation, the divorce? No, those are, that's my living. My life is who I am inside. In other words, I no longer can manage the way that I feel and the way that I perceive reality, the thoughts that I have, the feelings I have, and thus as a result of behavior I have. So I'm powerless over this behavior. Call it alcohol, call it, you know, driving too fast, whatever, whatever your poison is, that I, in and of myself, lack the power to change that thing and my behavior around that thing. And furthermore, I alone, with the power that I have, cannot manage my life. The inner life, my inner experience, or the result of that inner experience, which is my behavior. So that's step one. This is asking, this is acknowledging so that we can allow some help in. Yeah, exactly. This See, is, though that's, humility that's clearing the egoic, yeah. prideful... Hard-headed, dumbass self out of the way just enough where you get into step two, that I can come to believe that a power greater than my power can restore me to sanity. And there's mm. there's so much to unpack in each one of these. And I, I did this for years and years and years of study. I mean, just it's funny because I couldn't even think of what the first step was for a second. I think because it's I don't even think about it like that anymore. Right. It's just how it's it's the guiding force and life, uh, uh, you know, uh, the guiding light of my life. But yeah. in step two, it's that I come to believe that a power greater than myself. So there's another power here. Mm -hmm. And this is where you get into open-mindedness, where you consider, hmm, maybe I'm not the be-all end-all here, that perhaps there is some other help available to me. And then come to believe that once I find that power that is greater than the power that I possess solely on my own, that that power can restore me to sanity. And then you start to define what is sanity. Sanity in the dictionary is soundness of mind. Mm. Even if you Google uh, the definition of sobriety, 
most of the definition is around sound thinking. It's not even about abstinence from drugs or alcohol. Sobriety is like sober as a judge. What that means is you have integrity. Sobriety is integrity, right? And that's why there's so many levels and depths to the concept of being sober, emotional, physical, mental, sexual, financial, on and on and on, where you have soundness and guiding principles in all of those different areas of life. So in step two, now I have an access point to the power that I didn't have in step one. Step one, I don't have the power because obviously I keep picking that thing up again, but I can avail myself to a power. And then step three is made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand him. Now that in two, I've acknowledged there is a power and I've opened my mind to the idea that I might be able to access that power and use it to change myself. Now I'm going to make a decision that I'm actually going to turn my will and my life over to that power of God as I understand God. And I understand God as being a power. That's how it's named in step two. So in step three, I'm actually making the decision and nothing happens until you make a decision. We can talk about going to California right now. We're not doing anything until we make a decision to go to California. So I'm now making the decision that I'm going to be turning my life over. I'm going to be presenting my life to this power. And my life is, as I said earlier, the internal experience of how I perceive my reality and the results in my physical material world. That's my life and my will is what I want to happen. So right now I'm turning my will over to God if we're supposed to move to Sedona. I mean, that's how I live my life. And I think I, you know, I want that house right there. I want that view. I want the rocks. Like I want, you know, it's like, I want, that's my will. It's like when someone leaves a will, your last will and testament, what is that? That's what you want. That's your desire. So with this, with this, it, 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 there's, there's a reclamation of self and a reconnection. It sounds like there's also this reconnection to a higher power and a, a resolution, like a resolve of will. Yeah. And a choice, yeah. a choice to to step in, a choice to step up, a choice to allow. And like that's I think that choice, let's say, let's say is we're, we're you know, we're here uh, uh, having this podcast around the holidays of just like and 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 people may be in this indulgent space and put on a few extra pounds. And and there's that honesty that says, OK, I might be out of control with how much I put on my plate or whatever that is and saying, hey, I might need some help. And and that willingness to ask, hey, I might need a personal trainer um, in business. I might need a, a strategy, a business coach in in finances. I don't I'm not well good with my finances. I might need a financial coach. In this case, I might need a spiritual guide, you know, a spiritual practice, a spiritual teacher. If there's a deeper addiction with a substance, hey, I might need a sponsor. I might need a program so that my higher self, my higher will my higher divine plan can have an expression, can have um, its the, its path that it's meant to have here. Yeah, and there's a. It seems like it's a journey of empowerment. Yeah. Can you can you can we well, spend a few minutes? Okay. Yeah. You, know, well, you want to share something? <laughs> then I have, I have another well, question. You, know, you really got me fired up, and I don't know how much time we have, but um, you know, like going through the twelve steps would probably be a five hour podcast in and of itself. But I. I would like to continue on with that. And if I could do so in a concise way. Let's do it. Uh, because it's not something I typically talk about. You know, one of the 
traditions and a spiritual principle within those groups is the uh, principle of anonymity, right? Mm. And so right. like Alcoholics Anonymous, it's called anonymous because you don't go tell people you're in it. And that has to do with just social yes. stigma and things in the 30s. But there's also a tradition that you Respect. remain uh, autonomous at the level of press, radio, and films. And so I've always been really, I have so much reverence and respect for those teachings that you don't want to go on camera and say, hey, I'm a member of this or that group. So as a result, it's something that I kind of allude to uh, because I, I honor that. But at the same time, it would be disingenuous for me to pretend like that teaching as a whole was not part of my experience and really the foundation of my transformation. I mean, yeah. that's where it all comes from. So I just like to throw that out there because I used to get pissed when a celebrity would go on TV and be like, oh, I'm an AA. And I'd be like, you fucking asshole. Like, so you go relapse next week and end up in court. Then if someone's thinking about getting sober by that means, now they're not going to do it because it didn't work for you. Right. Or people just don't like you because they think you're an asshole. So they won't go get help and save their life because they're like, that guy, I'm not going where he goes. So okay. just, yeah, I just like to acknowledge the anonymity, but I'm not claiming to be a member of any particular group. I'm speaking about the 12 steps as a spiritual teaching, just like you could talk about the Course in Miracles or any other great teaching, right? Uh so step two is really about open-mindedness because now I'm, and there's inherently humility in that. I'm going like, hmm, well, maybe there is another power outside of just my power, which I've admitted in one is limited. And I'm going to get to know that power. And the beautiful thing about true open-mindedness is that it's not only letting go of your erroneous thoughts and views on the world and your life and getting rid of bad information, it's also about letting new information in. It's a, it's a two-way street. I always think of it as like a saloon door, you know, that swings both ways. Because many people think about open-mindedness as being uh, socially liberal or something like that. Like, yeah, you know, live and let live. Do your thing. Marry whoever, you know. This is being open yeah, this, to a higher this is This okay. is letting new information in. But it's also going, you know what? Maybe everything I've ever thought about my life and the world is wrong. Let's just consider that for a moment, right? So there's this beautiful open-mindedness and then that takes you into three where you're making the decision to turn your will and your life over to God, which is really tough to do if you haven't had step one to kick your ass and go, damn, I failed at life. Two, maybe there's another way to find sanity in my life. Three, making that decision. And then three is a willingness to continue on adopting spiritual principles in your life because you've made that decision to turn your will, your desires, what you want to happen over to God and then your life being the result of the things that you want. So it's a huge surrender. And surrender is the key, in my experience, to overcoming anything and everything that's troubling you or got you stuck. It's surrendering to the idea that you need help and that there is a power there that can help you. And then in step four, you're making a a personal inventory of all of the people that you've harmed along the way and also listing all of your fears and uh, making an inventory of your sexual behavior and all of these things, right? And so the magic in that is a deeper level of self-honesty and really putting it on paper and expressing it or pressing it out in a concrete, physical way. Gotta look at it. And looking at this is who I've become as a result of my life experience and and, and the decisions that I've made uh, in my addiction. And in that inventory, the most beautiful thing that comes in these columns, there's a little format you follow in the inventory. I think the most profound part is the part which is your part. 
I'm, you know, I have a resentment against my boss because he fired me, that asshole, and I never let it go. Or my brother stole my girlfriend, or you know, whatever your 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 grievance is. And then in that part, when you put on paper and you have started to develop some self-honesty, you see, well, I was late a lot. Kind of didn't show <laughs> you know? up. Yeah, Kinda I did, stole money. <laughs> I did neglect my girlfriend and used to just put her off with my brother yeah. when I, you know, whatever, you know. Uh but it's in taking responsibility for your life and the decisions that you've made. And responsibility this, is so empowering. This for us now, for everybody that's on the personal development journey, this is essential because this is where we get to look at, okay, with this breakup, with whatever, what's my part? What's my part? doesn't matter if yeah. it's 1% or 91%, like accountability, like yeah. what is my part? And I think that that's a powerful tool for everybody, sober or not. Is to is to look at every experience. What did I, what what's my participation? That's for the like freedom. a level of honesty, yeah. and 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 that that was the healing journey with my dad. Is that is that okay? Yes, he X Y Z whatever he did this. Yes, and you know what? When I'm accountable in my honest in response, I did this. I threw daggers. I said hurtful things. I closed my heart. I you know I and. That level of honesty came later in my life after I looked at my little inner child and working on healing her wounds about the experiences I, uh, you know, had with my dad. Uh, it was also like, and you know what? I, I, I said and did some hurtful things too. I, you know, I was a bully also. It isn't just pointing, and there's a like there's there's a level of powerful freedom in that in that for in any personal development yeah. experience what's my part whether it's a divorce whether whatever it is okay we yeah. got to roll through these so, yeah, tell, yeah. so tell us more uh so accountability once one has taken responsibility and really looked at the way they operate in the world by doing inventory and, and the work of byron katie is really She's amazing awesome. for this too of just really questioning your thoughts questioning your mind not just taking everything you think or feel to be true when in fact, most of it's not when you really dig. So in the step four of taking a personal inventory, you know, it's a moral inventory. It's looking at right and wrong. I mean, there's a bit of duality in it, but there, there, are, there is a path where you're doing good and a path where you're doing harm. And so it's really taking a look at that and, and the uh, empowerment that comes from taking responsibility. That's where the freedom from all resentment comes from is yeah. in that forgiveness. And the forgiveness comes when I see, ah, okay, there was a decision that I made based on a selfish interest that put me in the position to be hurt. And it doesn't, uh, you know, we're still acknowledging that someone else may have harmed us, that they had a part, et cetera, but that's not the important part. To become free, I have to see what I did and then be able to forgive myself for whatever I did that motivated me to put myself in front of that speeding train. Mm -hmm. And then also within the fourth step is looking at your instincts, which is really fascinating. And that was huge for me to start to see what impulses arise in me when one of my instincts is threatened and that those instincts are God-given. There's nothing wrong with having instincts, but when they are unmonitored and allowed to just run awry, then we're, that's we're flipping the person off on the road because they just threaten our security instinct because they're going to scratch our car and then, right. you know, um, sexual impulses, desire, all these kind of things that are, that are here for our survival when they become warped and are not monitored and controlled, uh, they wreak havoc on our lives and other people's lives. And, and that cycle of the sequence of events that follow from having unmonitored instincts leads one life 
to become unmanageable and painful and back into drugs. So this is all like you can see you're doing the the inner work to help yourself feel more comfortable and to naturally change your perception of the world to see the world as safe and non-threatening and a place of opportunity rather than a place of uh, my eventual demise. And then in step five, we're we're going in actually uh, looking at that inventory and becoming ready to go out and uh, make amends, which comes later on, you know? So it's it's like a, a deeper looking at that and we're sharing that with someone else now. I'm saying like, these aren't just the things I'm looking at. I'm gonna sit down with you or an advisor and be like, hey, I wrote all this stuff. I'm gonna admit to myself and another human being, the exact nature of my wrongs, meaning the exact nature of where I was in error, where I was thinking in error, feeling in error, acting in error. It's all on paper now. It's not just in my head. I'm going to actually go share that with someone and specifically with God. And then to speed through them in six, um, I'm going to now uh, be willing to surrender those defects of character. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say, wow, I'm a really angry, hostile person and I'm actually willing to change. Mm -hmm. And then in seven, looking at our shortcomings, the things where we're falling short. So step seven is about humility of knowing that I'll never achieve perfection, but it's my job to aim toward it, right? This sounds like this is where, okay, if I don't know how to communicate with my partner, I might need to learn how to communicate with Yeah, totally. If I don't know how to hold space for my emotions without aggression, you know, onto somebody else, then I might need to learn how to have more emotional intelligence or learn how to hold space. This sounds like it's I need a tool to fill the gap. I need to yeah. learn a skill. Yeah. I need to figure out how to manage stress or um, understand finances or be more responsible or whatever it is. And that that becomes the improvement part where I'm taking exactly. action instead of like, okay, well, I don't know how to manage money or I'm a jerk. It's like, okay, well, what can I do differently? Yeah. Let's put something that's ex- in its that's place. Let's very well said. Something. Let's and the, and the, the same thing where people land here in the healing practice. It's like okay, you might be having relationship conflict because of a core thing or an addiction, and you also might not have the tool. It's probably all three, and so. Let's get at the core wound. Let's also look at what is the habit and pattern that's in the way, and also. What is a tool that you can implement that is going to make you better at this and improve your ability to whatever it is? Yeah. Okay, so. So yeah, shortcomings, areas good. in which I'm falling short. There's things that I can now add in now that we've cleared away the things that don't need to be there, which is all of those character defects, uh, which are just kind of instincts gone awry, jealousy, anger, vindictiveness, yeah. all that shit, right? Um, phoniness, just inauthentic. Just, Nobody's ah, any of that. All the grossness <laughs> that's not you. And Nobody's then, ever, you know. So like. you're, <laughs> then you're kind of left with like, well, okay, what is there to do in that step seven? And then step eight, we're, we're making a list of everyone we've ever harmed and we're becoming willing to go out and directly make amends. And this is where it gets scary for most of us that have yeah. been real assholes for a long time. Uh, and then in step nine, you're making direct amends uh, to the people we've harmed whenever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others, exactly. which is a really, which is really beautiful principle in and of itself, because it not only applies to, you know, our selfish need, like, okay, I'm going to tell my wife I cheated on her um, because it's going to make me feel better. Right. Which is inherently, you're still going back to that selfishness that 
it comes out of your alcoholism or your addiction. It's that self-centeredness where you're just thinking about yourself and yourself only. So in some cases, an amends might not be made because it would cause more harm to the other person or to you. Like you, you're not going to walk yourself into court and go, um, you know, judge, I used to sell coke, you yeah. know, because you'd be harming your right. kid's life. Now you have to provide for them, et cetera. So there, there's a, um, there's a, an intelligence mm-hmm. and a wisdom in that to where now you've been through those other steps to the point where you can be honest with yourself and discerning with yourself enough to know if I go right this wrong with someone, is it going to be in the highest good for all? I want to address, or is it just to make me feel better? For sure, I want to address this because the, without the twelve steps, this is something that naturally on my personal development journey that it just came to be the time to say I'm sorry to my father. Yeah, like I had no idea about any of the twelve steps. It was more like for me to be in te- in integrity with healing this relationship with my dad. In this part of a making amends, a couple things needed to be in alignment. First of all, I needed to be in alignment that this is not, I'm not seeking him to apologize to me. This is not an amends with strings attached. Mm-hmm. It's not like, well, I'm yeah. sorry. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, you know, yeah. it was just like, I need to, uh, <laughs> right? Do you have so anything to say now that I've apologized? Your turn. <laughs> yeah. This was really something like I needed to be in my center in enough saying that I'm not attached to his response to my apology. He doesn't have to accept it. He does. He can walk away angry. He can be. He can tell me to fuck off. He can, whatever, like whatever he decides, is his response, and I'm not accountable for it. So there, there's, there's, there's a he, there's there was something that I needed to also not have an agenda when I came to the amends. I'm making amends for my part, whether they accept it or not. It, I can't control that, and that and there is a healing desire. To sit when I'm apologizing, I'm also acknowledging I left a wound in your heart. And there is a healing opportunity that the other person, it's an invitation for them to heal. Whether they take it or not, and they they still want to keep their heart closed and they still want to be angry is not within my means. But it but it does invite a healing to happen. Yeah. And I needed to stand in that place and be willing to say, I'm sorry for the times that I hurt you, Dad. And be able to be like in my center about it. What I wasn't expecting, Luke, was for him to say, you forgot about the time you did this. Mm -hmm. And I was like, "Ah, don't take the bait. Don't take the bait. Like use all your tools right now. Stay centered. Keep your heart open. Be compassionate. This is just, he's just wounded. He's hurt. And he's right. I did forget about the time that I, that wasn't on my list. And I said, you know what, dad, I was shaking because I was going to go into that little girl that would contract run and hide or that kind of more adolescent that learned how to fight and throw daggers. You know, I'm like, I was trained by the masters. I know how to fight and throw daggers. And so, but that's the part that I'm trying to amend right now. So I don't want to default back into that part of me that is going into attack mode. And it was like, if I hadn't done my personal work to learn other tools for calming my inner like knowing myself and being connected for sure to a higher power. There's no way I could keep in my calmness. I would have gone back into the inner child, triggered into smallness and fear, hiding behind a couch or 
going into my attack mode and I'm I'm wanting to evolve beyond both of those modalities. And it was so powerful healing, so powerfully healing for both of us. And it doesn't mean he changed a damn thing or was accountable for anything, but I changed my response to him that when he would get angry now, I could hold a different space. Yeah. And I could stay in that vibration of compassion and forgiveness. And if I know who I am, then I'm not connected to his response. Even if he doesn't acknowledge or he gets angry, there's a disassociation from his choice, which then really does create amends. Um, yeah, you yeah, know, because totally. amends doesn't mean mm. that they're they're cooperating. Mm-mm. And if you think about the word amends to amend, to mend something, to fix something, to put it back together, yeah. something that's fragmented. So there's a to me, there's a um, a karmic implication to making amends. And it's so true what you said that it's not for the other person. It's you see, I think sometimes when we feel guilt, we think oh, I want to apologize so that person feels better because we've been selfish. It becomes our but agenda. really, it's the healthiest selfishness to make amends to clear your own karma, and then you know have the um, have the respect to allow the person that you're making amends to to process however they're going to process. If they're at a place where they can offer forgiveness and and make a joint amends, wow, cool. Let's sing kumbaya. This is amazing. But if they're not, then you know the opportunity to step out of codependency and allow someone to have their own autonomy and their own experience and their own karma, because now they're holding the karma of not having forgiven us, even though we've acknowledged our wrongdoing. Which is choice. And I get to stay in that vibration of compassion that he doesn't have to forgive me because I've forgiven me and I've forgiven him. Whether he forgives himself and he forgives me isn't up to me. And that's on him. And but what it did change is the dynamic of our relationship. It, he he got even you know as he aged he got even more ornery because he was scared about the afterlife and was dealing with his own challenges and it that amends allowed a, a, a deeper level of compassion to continue in our relationship and he would you know keep testing me to see are you still going to be able to hold compassion when I do this or do that. Um, and uh, to his dying day and a beautiful opportunity to hold space for his transition with my heart open, not with a little girl, not with a closed heart, not angry, but just grace. Okay, so nine, we're on uh, nine. That's nine, making amends. Step 10, continue to take personal inventory. And when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. So the inventory in four was just a peek. Okay, let's look at who we've become in terms of our character, how we operate in the world, our value system, our morals, uh, our integrity or lack thereof. We're admitting the things that we want to get rid of. And then we're looking to the things that we want to have more of, right? And then having developed to that point, we make our amends. And in 10, it's remaining watchful. It's continuing to take personal inventory, which for me is not um, a writing thing anymore. It's just sitting in this conversation. I'm taking inventory, what my motive is to say this or to not do that. It's just constantly being self-aware and and present to one's motives, the micro decisions or macro decisions one is making. And then when I'm wrong, to promptly admit it to myself and sometimes to someone else. You know, What I love about this one is that it doesn't allow things to build up under the carpet that we just ignore and ignore. It's like immediately... Let's look at it and transmute it right now. It's like, okay, I screwed up. I tripped over the thing. I lied. I whatever. 
let me be accountable immediately. And that I think that that getting in that habit is, you know, whether it's I raised my voice in an argument and say, hey, babe, I'm sorry. Oh, you know, I didn't eat or I'm tired. I didn't sleep last night. Let me try that again. Or I was that was from a triggered place. I'm going to try that again. Yeah. Um, and to just get in the practice of course correcting in the moment, yeah, which is beautiful. a mastery skill. And, and I, I love that. In the, I didn't know yeah. that was in the, yeah. in the 12 steps. Yeah. Okay, give us, so when we're, us when home. we're, when we're wrong, promptly admit it, which to me wrong, it's not like right or wrong. It's when I'm in error, when I'm seeing yeah. things outside of their actual reality. Yeah. When I've become delusional about something, I promptly admit, oh, wow, I'm mistaken. I'm seeing this thing in a way that's not really there. You know, someone says something and I take it to mean something. I'm in error because it didn't mean that. I promptly admit to myself that I don't know that that's what they meant. You know, so it's like it is an instantaneous, ongoing, in the moment inventory to keep you clean and to keep you between the rails. And step 11 uh, is... um, is sought through uh, prayer and meditation mm. to improve my conscious contact with God. You know, it's about, and I'm probably not, I'm paraphrasing some of these as I go, the 12 step folks will know when I'm doing so, but it's, it's continuing through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with God. And this so, is, you, know, the, you know, every spiritual practice has this come to your, you know, your spirit or your time with universe, whether that's daily meditation, whether that's prayer and mantra, whether that's prayer, whether that's scripture, whether that's mantra. And so every spiritual religion, you know, religion has some form of communion with self and the divine, Yeah, you know, and it looks different for each religion, but I appreciate that this is, this is saying, Hey, you know, staying connected to the divine higher, higher power or your soul's knowing is part of a daily practice to keep you centered. Yeah, and I love that this one has the principle of improving. So there's no status quo. There's not like, oh, that God thing? Yeah, I got that figured out. Yeah, I learned to meditate. I pray here and there. (laughs) It's improving that relationship. And it is a relationship that's like a relationship one would have with a person sitting right there. And it's a relationship with God, you know, and um, using whatever means necessary. And that, that, Step also opens up a lot of exploration. And that's, you know, I did Vedic meditation. I went to India, Kundalini yoga, plant medicines. I mean, I've, you know, done anything I've ever heard of that improves your relationship with God. I've done it. If, if it's out there, <laughs> I've tried it or else I just haven't heard about it yet, yeah. you know? And, um, you know, in the therapy and all, all the different ways that we can uh, heal and improve uh, that, that contact. And then um, step 12 is where we um, become of service. You know, we commit our lives to helping other alcoholics and addicts and also just people at large because it's having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. Uh, It's our responsibility if we wake up, if we are more right of center, if we are more plugged in, if we are more stable, if we are more connected, if we have the resources, the mental fortitude, the integrity it is our ethical responsibility to turn back and help our brothers and sisters that are lost, you know, and so many helped me when I was lost that I wouldn't be here without, Oh man! you know, I oh mean, and it's, it's, totally. it's, it's that, you know, in Peru, we call this the Aini, the, the, the reciprocity. It's not out of, out of obligation. It's more out of 
um, a flow that there's times in which where I'm going to be on the boat instead of rowing, I'm going to be pouring water on the boat. And sometimes, you know, I'm going to be the one, you know, taking the water and, and, and pulling buckets off the boat. Sometimes I'm going to be rowing and, um, acknowledging that as a community, there's times in which we're all going to play the weak link, you know, the court jester. We're all, there's times of us where we're always going to be the one that needs support by the community and it's okay. Then as that shifts and you learn and grow, then how can we turn around and help, help our brothers and sisters that are needed? And that's, that's what you are doing right now. That's what, that's the place I'm in right now. And that it doesn't mean we don't still have the things that we're tripping over and, you know, our, you know, little addictions that are pulling our attention or, or the times in which like, oh, I don't need to talk to God today, or I don't need to, like, I've got life figured out. And there's just this continued beautiful journey of remembering and coming back. And, um, I'm so grateful that you, stayed. And I mean, like stayed, I know that there was probably more than one opportunity for you to check out and just not be here. And this is for all of us. When one person wakes up and stays and, and plugs into life, what your, your podcast has 6 million downloads. And so you're, you're living step 12. Yeah. Like, I just want to really celebrate that. And that's, that's for all of us that none of us, wherever we are on the journey, wherever we feel lost, or we don't feel like we have anything to contribute, that is just not true, because we all have something to contribute. It's going to look different for all of us at different phases of our life. But we all have something to give back from the pains that we've overcome from the lessons we've learned from the from the summits we've, you know, uh, achieved. And also what we've navigated along the way and, 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 and learned along the way. And so you have certainly done that. And I just have tremendous respect for, you know, what you've navigated and the truth that you're bringing out through your podcast and your services. And so thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, there's, what else is there to do? You know? <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Right? I mean, it's like, God, I just think about, um, the the men that helped me you know especially in recovery a couple in particular i mean i just i really don't think i would have made it i would have stayed sober and if i didn't stay sober i mean i just people like me don't end up living very long or you end up pushing a shopping cart you you know then you're just just a statistic and if you're listening to this if you're watching this it's because you're not meant to be a statistic you know you're not meant to be like a memorial of like, wow, a life unlived, like a life is you're listening, watching. (laughs) It's because there's some addiction, some little thing, some big thing that has a hold of a part of your life and your mission that is keeping you from your greatness or keeping you from really deeply stepping in and, and serving. And so we're just here to acknowledge we're going through it too. I had a funny, funny thing I want to share with you real quick recently. Um, so I smoked cigarettes from like 16 years old till, I don't know, probably I was 40 or something. Maybe 10 years ago, I think I quit. Uh, yeah, 9, 10 years ago. I must have been 40, 41. I'm 50 now. So it's a long time smoking cigarettes, man. It is. It's just, you know, I don't know if I would have been able to get sober if you couldn't drink coffee and smoke cigarettes. You know? <laughs> Sit outside the church, you know, just 
then at some point, um, I quit smoking. I, you know, I was given the gift of grace and I, I put cigarettes down. I finally just quit cold turkey one day. It just was gone, poof, just like drugs and alcohol were for me. It was a divine intervention. And then at uh, some point, a couple years into that, I was on a cruise and someone gave me a Cuban cigar. And I thought my little oh. voice was like, Luke, don't do it. Don't. That's nicotine. And I was like, well, it's not a cigarette. I, I justified it, smoked a cigar. <laughs> Then end up smoking cigars every day for like four years. I smoked three or four cigars a day, and anyone that smoked a Cuban cigar knows it's they're like, they're strong. It's so yeah. I got re-addicted. Then you know they were too expensive, so I started smoking cigarettes. Then I started dipping, yeah. you know, chewing tobacco. Then I'm I'm walking around literally like I didn't want to buy cigarettes because I was in denial that I was addicted. I would. This is gross. I'm sorry. It's just the truth. I'd be walking into 7-Eleven or something. I'd see a nice fat butt on the ground or in the ashtray. I'd pick it off the ground to smoke it. You know, became so addicted. Then finally, I quit that and I realized, you know, I just can't touch nicotine in any form. And at that point, you know, I'm I don't know over 15 years sober or something. So all right, man, I can't do nicotine. Years go by. Nine years go by. Last year, I'm in Costa Rica and I was in a ceremony and they have these uh, mapachos, these, you know, nicotina rustica, wild tobacco. It's part of the ceremony. I thought, well, yeah, yeah. it's part of the ceremony. Yeah, I mean, yeah, when yeah. in Rome. You were so sneaky. Right? Yeah. First night, man, I'm, you know, we're in the Shipibo ceremony and I, you know, there's, there's dark, it's just dark. They're singing Icaros, there's medicine and you just see these little cherries. Yep. And you, you smell that beautiful tobacco. And I noticed the next day I went back in the Maloka and I'm looking around for butts. <laughs> so right. then, I, then I left Costa Rica and I was like, okay, I'm fine. Then I came back home and I was fine. And then I remembered I had a Cuban cigar in my freezer for the zombie apocalypse. I, I <laughs> just saved in it. case. Yeah, just if the end of the world happens, I'm going out with a Cuban in my hand. <laughs> uh, and I smoked it and I was fine. A few months go by, I went to a party. Someone gave me a Cuban, smoked it. I was fine. I thought it was so fine. I started going to the cigar store. There it goes again. And buying Cubans again. And then and then started smoking, you know, two or three cigars again. And then uh, as you were mentioning, people around us, if they love us, they'll uh, you know, they'll let us know. And and my lovely Allison was like, Hey, you know, um you do you, but notice the cigar thing's getting pretty consistent here. Are you okay? I'm like, nah, I'm fine, I'll quit sometime. And and then started to become bothersome to her because I'm smelly. We can't right. kiss now. It's just, right. I'm gone in the yard for, you know, it takes an hour to smoke a cigar. Anyway, I had become re-addicted to nicotine. And uh, I wanted to do an experiment in hitting a bottom. And my bottom was Allison eventually just being like, dude, this is not happening. Like, I, I didn't start going out with the smoker. You didn't smoke. It was a bait and switch. Now you're like a full on nicotine smoker guy, you know? It's not okay. Yeah. It's just, she's like, it's just really hard for me. And I could see her pain and I love her so much. And I want to see her in pain. And frankly, I'm a biohacker, man. I'm into health. Like nicotine in small doses is good for you. Big doses, really toxic. And it depends. It may not be good for you. Yeah. It depends. For me, it's not right? good for it's me. Not, I'm right? tired. I'm always craving right. it. And now I'm doing the nicotine gum. I'm just like, dude, almost 24 years sober and like something got me again. Fuck no. So I, I told Alice, I said, you know, when we get to Sedona, I'm going to stop, which would have been November 1st. We got here and I thought, let me see if I can do this without going to a nicotine anonymous or making right, a right. big production out of it. I wonder if I actually have the resources now to just surrender something and just be done. And I came out here and I just stopped cold turkey, just done, didn't think about it, didn't talk about it until now. 
And there's been a few times, I'll be honest. I'm like, oh man, I wish I had some nicotine gum right now or be nice to sit out here and smoke a cigar. But it's just a fleeting thought. And it just goes to show not only can we overcome these addictions, but they can come back, you In know. Other forms. Yeah. And once you once you've kind of created the groove for that habit, man, it's so easy to fall back into it. But it was a real a beautiful example of having done all of the work inside that we've been talking about to really look at what is it that's causing me to feel uncomfortable and why why am I going to that as an escape, you know, because that the satisfaction of fulfilling the nicotine addiction in that moment, it's not that you enjoy the nicotine. That's the weird thing about smoking. It's that you enjoy plugging the leak in the craving. Right. You have a craving because you're now addicted to nicotine physically. And it's not that the nicotine feels good. It's just the satisfying the craving. Just like if you didn't have a mosquito bite, scratching your arm doesn't really feel very good. If you have a mosquito bite, it feels amazing. So what's the itch? You this, know? Is a great, this is a great way to... to, to dive in to what's your itch why what's the void what are you feeling what why why the reach and is it medicine or is this a journey yeah. of, of of a poison yeah so yeah and thank so, you for that level of honesty yeah you know? i mean it was it was a funny thing to go through because i'm right. watching myself do it right. and i know that i'm doing it i'm like i'm just yeah. i'm gonna just do this and see what happens right and it was the same thing. It was like, I don't, this thing's controlling me. Like my whole day revolves around like, where'd I leave that cigar? Do I, is the store closed? I got to get more. I order them online. They're taking too long. Right. It's like, I'm back in that cycle. I'm going, fuck, no, I did not come this far to be controlled by a leaf. That, it's just, what are you controlled by? That's, yeah. what I, that's what I want to leave people with is like, hey, yeah. look at what you're feeling that kind of, <gasps> Where's my phone? And I feel it right now. Like, uh, where's my phone? Like, that's where <laughs> yeah. I would say what it is for me today. today where's my phone? Or like, yeah. if the internet isn't working yesterday, the internet wasn't working. I was like, <gasps> and it's like, okay, this is for all of us because you're still dancing with different things. I'm still dancing with different things is to be like, let's just have a check-in with where there is an anxiety with a substance, an experience, a technology, um, a relationship, a person. And yeah. Let's, you know, walk through the 12 steps. <laughs> yeah, I mean, really what I what I arrived at in, in summary was, you know, in looking at the why, there's the what, which is this behavior that's becoming annoying right. and self-destructive on, on some level. Um, why, yeah. The why, and, you know, really it has a lot to do with what's going on in the world right now and just the influx of communism and all the things that we're witnessing, you know, so I'm not going to get into all that, but it's just, you know, the stressor, lockdown and the mass. Stressor, yeah. Stressor, it's like just, the, you know, whether for you at the beginning as a child, it was, you know, as a physical or sexual stressor. And today our stressor might be financial. It might be relationship stress. It might be collective, political, financial. And it's just like, look at where the stress is, whatever, in whatever nature are bringing about some need to fix, feel numb. Yeah. So I would yeah. love for you to tell everybody, thank you for like everything that you shared today. Um, I'd love for you to tell everybody where they can find you because I'm so excited to share your pod. I'm going to be on your podcast too. Yeah. So check that out. That'll be coming soon. Yeah. But tell everybody where they can find your amazing podcast and your I socials will, and everything. I will do that. So my podcast is called The Life Stylist. Three words, The Life Stylist. It's uh, a take on my former career as a fashion stylist, whole other story. But uh, it helps people learn how to design a life. So you take these different truths, these principles, elements of spirituality, biohacking, health, 
put all these pieces together via the guest. And that's really the crown jewel of everything that I do. The Lifestylist Podcast on Instagram. I'm at Luke Story. We're live streaming right there on my account. So those that are following know that already. And then the mothership is uh, LukeStory.com. And that's where you can find all of the past podcast episodes and videos. And I have an online store where I uh, curate all of my favorite biohacking and healing technologies and supplements and all that stuff. So yeah, that's where I live. You are the master. I swear, I love your podcast because there's Thank always you. some new supplement. I'm like, oh yeah, that's going to help with energy or focus or digestion or that technology is a good tool. Hadn't thought about that. You know, who do I know that has that technology or where can I where can I find that? So I, you're bringing the latest and greatest to mainstream, and you've been a, a real visionary for bringing tools and resources to creating a thriving, vibrant, conscious, woke, um, joyful life. Thank you. And yeah, you know, when we do part two, we you know next time maybe we can talk about all of the physical support. You yes. know, just optimizing your body that supports your. Um, you know, not only with addictions, but just your vitality yeah. and gives you the physical strength and um, ability to do the spiritual work. Well, because you know? when there's a trauma or when there's a pain in whatever form, the nervous the nervous system is really just fritzed. Yeah. And so, um, absolutely, would love to look at how do how do we support and reset the nervous system after trauma or after addiction, dances with addiction, or when we've had a certain substance in our body for a long time or a certain experience that has left us um, with residue, physical residue that our, our physical body actually needs to be supported to bring the physical body back into alignment. So yeah. Thank you so much, Thank brother. You. I'm excited Likewise. to just, we could like, we, and we will. Yeah. I just feel like we will. We'll just keep chatting and um, talking about that. So, um, Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. Um, go check out Luke and all of his details. You can always find me at shamangelichealing.com. We have a free gift for you, so definitely check it out because we talked so much about um, the inner child healing. I want to give a free guided visualization for inner child, um, you know, healing that inner child and going to support what they're experiencing. So go and download that free gift. Please share this conversation. Everybody is dancing with some form of addiction, and I'm sure there's some pearl, some insight that is valuable for everybody you know. So thank you in advance for sharing this podcast with others so that more people get the tools and resources that they need. Thank you, Luke. And um, thank you for tuning in. This has been a mega, mega conversation. And so acknowledging that if you're still listening, if you're still watching, that there's something here for you. So take what we shared and do something with it. Take the next step in your journey of, of releasing anything that's holding on to you that is holding you back. Anything you want to say before we... That's it. I want to say thanks for joining. And uh, no matter how dark it gets, always know that there is hope. You know, if you're someone that's suffering from addictions uh, in the way that we talked about today, trust me, there is always a light at the end of the tunnel. And uh, sometimes it's just a matter of asking for help. You know, that was my story. I prayed to God. Woke up in rehab one morning, didn't believe in God, prayed to God anyway, because I had no other choice. And I had a spiritual experience that rendered me uh, sober and gave me the beginning of the path that I'm on now. So, um, you know, don't lose faith. There's always a way out. 
There's always a way. And we're living examples of that because both of us have had all kinds of different addictions and traumas. And so thank you so much for tuning in. We love you. We uh, support you and go forth and shine. Have an amazing, epic day. 